Hello and welcome to the next episode of our podcast on negotiation. And our today's episode will be with uh, our senior negotiation expert, trainer, coach, uh, um, diversely trained in uh, in negotiation, art and science, Andreas Winheller. Andreas, uh, great to have you with us. Thank you, Remy, and uh, thank you for having me. Uh, looking forward to a wonderful evening. Thank you so much, Andreas. Uh, and there are a couple of uh, there are a couple of uh, a couple of questions that we prepared as a continuation of our discussion with Gary Nessner uh, on the FBI tactics and how uh, what is um, <clears throat> what is the best way of influencing even the most difficult partners. Uh, and before we add, before we start with our questions, I would like to um, I would like to tackle uh, I would like to dive a little bit deeper into your background, Andreas. I know you've been active in teaching negotiation for I don't know, over two decades. Yes, how many negotiators have you trained so far? Well, above uh, ten thousand. Uh, it should have been ten thousand in this uh, uh, twenty-three years. Yeah. Wow, ten thousand negotiators, and they were very lack, very lucky to um, uh, to have you as their as their um, on their path to mastery as their negotiation coach and trainer. Andreas is also a, a... I would say it depends. I think uh, uh, the participants uh, they had me a trainer in uh, the last few years uh, were much much more uh, luckier than the uh, let's say the beta test particip participants when I started in 2001. Uh, when I look back uh, what I did uh, in training then uh, and I compare it to what I do these days in, in, in my uh, in my trainings, uh, that's a huge difference uh, since uh, yeah since you get more experience in a broader uh, perspective on the field. So what do you think Andreas has changed between now and then, um, between Andreas in 2000 and uh, 2000 and Andreas in 2024? Well, when I was in, uh, in Harvard at the program on negotiation, I did the, I did the trainer course in 2001. Um, and, and I was uh, thrilled by that uh, beautiful, uh, brilliant theories and, and, and all that wonderful strategies. And, um, and I really came back with that idea that I took from, from this uh, World League program and, and, and started to, um, started to, to train uh, to, to find the perfect strategy and the perfect tactic to dealing with, uh, with rational people out there, with brilliant, civilized people out there. Um, unfortunately, um, just a few of, uh, of us are uh, really uh, rational. Um, I, I uh, like to, uh, to quote uh, Richard Thaler, uh, the uh, Nobel Prize uh, of Economics uh, winner. Uh, he, has, he said um, in, his, um, in his speech, uh, he said, um, real people are less like Commander Spock and more like Homer Simpson. <laughs> as a summary of uh, decades of his research in behavioral economics. Um, and I think uh, this is a good description on, 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 on the perspective change uh, that, that, that I had um, and the change that I did in my training. Today, uh, I try to train uh, for the typical... Homer Simpsons. Yeah, for the Homer Simpsons out there, like us. <laughs> 
<laughs> like us exactly so um and uh, one of the one of the other changes between now and then i i guess is your fascination with uh, the crisis uh, crisis negotiation and the methods uh, the methods developed back then uh, by gary nesner and and his colleagues on how to handle difficult negotiators and difficult negotiations. Yes. Uh, can you tell, do you, re, do you still remember when you came across, when you first came across crisis negotiation as a, as a field and what fascinated you in that field the most? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, around 20 years ago, uh, I got first in contact with, with that field. But um, at that moment, I was... I was not interested uh, because it sounds to me it, it it sounds really weird. It's because I was not um, I was not taught by uh, someone who was a real crisis negotiator. But I heard uh, from a guy that we have in the German speaking world uh, who is claiming to be a crisis negotiation expert, but never had been a real uh, FBI crisis negotiator. Um, and I read his books and his ideas, and I said. That's nothing. That's that's valuable for me. So it has nothing to do with um, with, with the business world. Uh, escalation and and stuff like that is not a helpful strategy for what to do. So so I totally ignored that field. And then um, around ten years later, um, I got in contact first with the ideas of George Kohlreiser. Uh, George Kohlreiser, pro professor uh, in uh, AMD in Lausanne. Uh, who had been a real crisis negotiator, and I read his book, um, and it sounded so different from why, what I had learned, and, and that was the the starting point. Um, and then I I thought, okay, there's more. Uh, I want to understand the field. I want to to to, to read the real books written by the original uh, crisis negotiator. And then I dipped deeper and deeper and and. Um, get in touch uh, with my with my friend Gary Nussner, which is um, which was real, which, which is the difference that makes the difference. Yes, exactly. Um, and I had uh, the chance to to work together with him one on one, and um, yeah, and I found that there's so so detailed, so profound uh, framework behind which is really helpful on finding solutions to everyday problems that we have even in business negotiations. So it was a, a long way to come to come to a situation where I'm where I'm here right now where I say well I think um, these both worlds are two perspectives on the one world of negotiation and we have to build bridges. bridges we have yeah. to We have to build bridges between the business school type of teaching negotiation and the crisis negotiation framework and the crisis negotiators network. We have to build bridges because we can learn so much from each other. Combine, if from each other, if we com combine these both frameworks, uh, we can learn more from them than they can from us because they have different negotiations. But we we can we can really really learn from them mm -hmm. that's uh, that's fascinating and i think uh, you know um in terms of general uh, general public um probably when um 
splitting the difference as uh, from Chris Voss uh, hit the market a couple of years ago and became immediately became a bestseller, right? It was, uh, it is well-written, has nice, a nice story behind it. And people just love the story, right? Uh, and I think that the, 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 the readers divided into two, into two groups. Yes. One group said, well, oh, it's a nice story, but, um, uh, it's good. It's good that it works. Uh, it works in hostage-taking situations. But it, I'm not in my business. I I don't really take hostages, or I'm not in the business of taking or releasing hostages. So I, uh, it doesn't work for me. And the other group said, well, if it works, even if it, I mean, if, if it works in hostage-taking situation, crisis situation, then it even more has to work in everyday business situation. So I have a, a certain hypothesis which 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 group you belong to Andreas. <laughs> but can you can you can you somehow convince those who th still think um, that um, who are skeptical about the applicability of um, of um, the crisis negotiation techniques and methods uh, to join our camp? Well, um I'm a member of both groups, to be to be honest. I'm a member of both groups. Um, I think when we um, when we look deeper and uh, in, into the Never Split the Difference book and and, and Chris Foss' work and, and Chris Foss's framework, first of all, um, it's it's really helpful that he has started building bridges uh, between the crisis negotiation world and the business negotiation world. Um, but unfortunately, he's not building bridges um, taking valuable things from both worlds and put them together. But he's trying to tell the story that you just need the crisis negotiation framework um, to be successful in in every negotiation, even in a business negotiation. And this is for sure wrong. And um, I, I think the most important thing is that we have to understand that there is one sentence in that book that is really, really false. And that is the sentence, the hostage negotiation is a business negotiation like any any other business negotiation because hostage taking is a business like any other business and this is simply not true so um if we use uh and i think that's really helpful to understand where we can uh where we can use that framework uh, if we use the 3d negotiation uh framework uh from david lex and james sabenius uh, two of my uh really the teachers that were really influential on, on, on my thinking and teaching. And we have a look on this, on these three dimensions. The first dimension they call at the table. It's the communication process. It's the, the interaction at the table. And on that first dimension, it is 90% the same, whether you have a business negotiation or you have a crisis negotiation. We very often think that it is that, that that yeah that business negotiation is a game of uh, giving good reasons, but I don't believe that this is true. Uh, if we have a look from a neuroscience uh, from cognitive neuroscience perspective on negotiation, we understand that it is an influencing game, nothing else. So 
on the first dimension, it's an influencing game. And these crisis negotiators are the world leading best influencers because they are in, in such complicated situations where influencing is all that they have. On the second dim dimension, the deal design or deal structuring dimension, I think both worlds have nearly nothing in common. So it is a totally different thing. In crisis negotiation, you don't do value creation. You don't, you do, you don't create self-enforcing contracts. You, know, you don't implement uh, implementation-oriented uh, uh, clauses uh, uh, and, um, and things like um, contingency deals and stuff like that. The, and you don't have long-term uh, relationships so it hopefully is not, not yes so it's not that important to um uh for reputation building and look on press uh, precedences um strategic relationship management stuff like that so uh, on that second dimension it is a totally different world so if a crisis ne negotiator is telling you like chris foss is that you just have to play the influencing game and then everything will work well. He simply does not understand how economic optimization in negotiations work. And we do, we from a business school perspective, we do, and we can teach them how to do that. Um, my friend Gary Nessner totally acknowledged that. We had um, done, um, some workshops together teaching uh, influencing uh, for business negotiations and he was always saying um, I, I'm not an expert on business negotiations and I'm not an expert uh, on um, deal structuring so ask Andreas how to do that <laughs> I can tell you if you know what type of op optimization and what deal you want to uh, you want to uh, push through, then I can tell you how, how you could do that, how you could uh, be how you could be more persuasive, uh, bringing forward your offers and your ideas for structuring the deal. So the third dimension away from the table, there are something we can learn from the crisis nego uh, negotiators, like uh, using the media um, 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 and like uh, building up. A, uh, negotiate an effective negotiation system, but there's also a lot of very specific business um, business uh, issues like uh, dealing with a buying center. Uh, a crisis negotiator doesn't doesn't do some sort of, of of you know dealing with a buying center and hidden influencing strategies and stuff like that. That's not that's not what they do. So, uh, what they do. So we on that specific. Uh, on this spe specific level, we can say there is a lot that we can take from crisis negotiations, and Chris Foss is right on that, but crisis negotiation is not the solution and is not the better way of uh, negotiate a business, uh, a business deal. Thank you, Andreas, for sharing your perspective. Uh, there's one more, <clears throat> one more aspect which... Uh which those of uh, our listeners and viewers uh, who have read Never Split the Difference probably have come across, especially if uh, 
if they were trained by, um, um, let's say, in their in their business or legal illegal studies or in their um, other negotiate respect respected negotiation programs, uh, that is making the first offer, right? Because you know one of the things that Chris Voss mentions uh, in there is never do that, never make the first offer as a negotiation, which we know by now after about 20 years of no more more than that uh, uh, about 30 years of uh, of uh, scientific research uh, we know that it's simply not true that making the first offer does have an impact um, and substantial impact on on the final outcome of, of an agreement however there's an interesting exception which illustrates exactly the difference between uh, between crisis situations and business and that is uh, we've uh, until recently we typically said well uh, there's one exception where information asymmetry is to your disadvantage. Yes, which means, well, if you know less about the subject matter than your partner does, well, let them go first. And I think that exception describes most of the crisis uh, situations. Yes, and I think the logical uh, logical fallacy of uh, never split the difference is generalizing based on n equals one. Right? Uh, if we take, let's say. If we take information asymmetry or significant information asymmetry to our disadvantage as a general description of our world or negotiation settings, well, then it's legitimate to make that claim. But unfortunately, uh, we can still prepare. We can still neutralize information asymmetry, right, Andreas? What do you think about it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. First of all, uh, it's a funny thing that you asked me a question on uh, uh, on uh, first offers, since uh, you had uh, done uh, huge research on that, and and you had uh, published a wonderful paper, uh, I think, a year ago or two years ago on on, on that topic, and um, and it it, it shows. Um, that there are different perspectives and, and different situations, but in uh, but I totally agree. Um, in the majority of cases, I also uh, would advise to uh, to use the uh, to use a first offer, uh, especially if you uh, if you can um, use some 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 tactics uh, to reduce the risk. Um, that it is too extreme. Um, but then we have a look on the deal that the crisis negotiators are doing. And I think that that tells us um, uh, about the, the main difference. They don't do compromises. So, uh, yeah, so, so Chris Foss is telling you don't do compromises, never split the difference. And in his world, this is true. So if you have four hostages, we will not agree to a deal. Okay, you can take two of them and kill them and do whatever you do. Give me two of them and we are fine. I want all four hostages to be released. I want you to surrender and to go in jail. So this is, and, and there is nothing to, to bargain on, the, on, on these main issues. Correct. We can negotiate whether you get a pizza or whether you can call call your mom before you go to jail or you can speak in the in the, in the radio or something like that. Uh, we can negotiate over that, but it, but we will not negotiate on these issues. All hostages uh, has to be released. You have to sur you have to surrender, and you have to go to jail. So this is the situation where the crisis negotiators are in. 
It is because they have absolute superior power. Because the BATNA of the hostage taker is that the SWAT team comes in and most probably will kill them. So they have a really bad BATNA. So from that high power position, the only thing you have to do as a crisis negotiator is to calm down the emotional situation. And I hear uh, Gary Nessner uh, in, in the podcast episode uh, two weeks ago um, describing how that works in detail. I will not too much go in that. But you just have to put that down, stalling for time, wait your negotiation partner to understand the real situation and his no deal option and all will go in a way that's good for you as a crisis negotiator right i don't mean that this is a, a simple task uh, that's a really complicated um, yeah but uh, economically they have nothing to negotiate so in nearly every business negotiation that our that, that we or anyone else who hears that podcast um, has to negotiate, there is a room, the ZOPA, for negotiation. So uh, if, if we have just a very simple negotiation, but if we have a, a distributive negotiation between 2,000 and 2,500, we have to agree on how we split these 500 euros negotiation value between us. So, of course, we will compromise in a way. Of course, we will do value creation and do all this win-win tactics and techniques and, and, and stuff like that. Yes, of course. But at the end, we will compromise a little bit. We have to. Otherwise, in business negotiations, we will not find a solution that is good for us. So we have that room because right. no one has that superior power that he can force the other person to totally surrender. And if we understand how these situations differ, we understand that it is not enough to negotiate simple like the crisis negotiators are negotiating. We have to implement the, the economic optimization level the second dimension level we have to implement that and combine that with the with, with the uh, influencing tactics and and techniques that we can learn from the fbi crisis negotiators because that is the thing that they do really well yes wow thank you andreas for <clears throat> for making those differences uh for describing those differences in a very precise uh, very precise way we're getting uh, slowly getting questions from the audience and uh, to you guys uh, out there you're welcome to post your questions uh, we'll try to answer as many of them as we as we possibly can uh, within the time limits that we have um, but let me maybe before before we tackle some of the questions that are uh, that are in the chat let me maybe um, uh, talk about uh, the biggest lessons and the biggest lessons that business people can, we know the differences, yes? We know the differences now. We know that uh, uh, negotiating a deal uh, in business is not the same as um, releasing hostages or negotiating in crisis situations in general. But uh, what was what is the biggest lesson, 
the biggest lesson that we as uh, business negotiators can um, can take with us and apply in our business situations from crisis negotiators, from great crisis negotiators like, for example, Gary Nessner? Well, it's it's difficult to prioritize um, because I think there's some very good learning points. But if I would say the biggest lesson, I would say one thing. or If you feel that I had persuaded you, so successful persuasion is a feeling. It is a feeling in the emotional part of your brain. It is not some logical conclusion in the outer part where the cognitive thinking is taking part, the conscious thinking is taking part. It is a feeling. It is an emotion in the emotional center of your brain. So if you want to go to, to a yes, to a commitment yes, you have to be able to create this feeling in the unconscious part of the brain of your negotiation partner. And you, you will not be successful in uh, doing that if you come up with really logical reasoning. So Chris Foss in his book, he's writing a sentence that I really think is, is, is on point on that topic. He says, that's right, is a winning strategy in all negotiations. But hearing you are right is a disaster. <laughs> and that's the, that's the very important, the very important distinction. Okay, um, we try to get a yes exactly from the emotional part of our negotiation partner and all our influencing strategies should have that goal in mind. If we understand that, we understand the basic truth that likability is the most important fundamental thing in negotiation. So if you harm the relationship, you will not be successful in, nego in, in um, negotiating. So for a professional negotiator, even in business negotiations, the number one, the number one uh, commandment should be uh, treat your opponent with respect and try to work on that bonding, on that building a trustworthy, trustful uh, human relationship from human to human, not from a business logic, not from a CEO to another C-level guy. No, from a human to human, a bonding. So everything which is harming that is not, not a good idea to implement in, in a negotiation. And we have, especially in the German speaking world, where we have some, some industries and companies that are still believing in false truth, uh, 
on negotiation. We have that. Uh, we have people negotiating, especially in purchasing, creating some sort of courtroom uh, hardball where you get attacked from the from the first moment on, attacked as a person, attacked uh, on your integrity um, and stuff like that. And anything of that works against you if you try economic optimization. This True. is simply not professional. This is, I would say, this is the, this is the, the most valuable uh, lesson that we can learn from the crisis negotiators. Um, and I think that's the answer to the question or to many negotiation questions that practitioners are bringing to us as negotiation trainers. And you anticipated the question which I was about to uh, show from the audience. Uh, so let me uh, let me read it out loud. Uh, one of our one of our user one of our listeners or viewers uh, is asking whether you have a statistically a successful formulaic approach to the tactics you use in your opposition research or practical applications when it comes to negotiation. So how do you do, uh, um, how do you, how do you as Andreas Winheller uh, negotiate? What is the, uh, if you were to squeeze everything that you know about, which is a lot, yes, uh, into one recommend, recommendation, one sentence, one model that we can, you know, write on the, uh, write on the wall in nice cursive um, uh, yeah. uh, font and uh, or handwriting. What would it be? Yeah, um, it would be that I first want to hear a yes exactly coming from a heart after a summarizing that I that I did before I bring forward my my proposals and my offers and stuff like that. So. I first focus on understanding, on really understanding the basic needs, the interests, the emotions, and, and I'm using the active listening skills that you had already discussed with, with Gary Nössner. I'm a really, really summarizing fan. Uh, that's one of my most favorite uh, uh, most favorite techniques from the active listening skills of the FBI. Summarizing means you tell the other person what you have heard and what you think about his basic needs. What does he, what, what does he want? What does he need? And why does he need that? And if you do it in a way where you get that, yes, exactly. That's the, that's the difference. Not the yes, uh, uh, yes, exactly. Coming from the heart, you see that the other person is touched through your ability to create understanding. Then you can bring forward all the proposals and all the ideas for for your win-win uh, approach and for uh, and for deal structuring and, and how to implement and how to work together and how to create some uh, some conflict resolution procedures and stuff like that. After that, first work on that. Yes, exactly, and it's a game changer if you do that. 
Thank you, uh, thank you, Andreas, for sharing this. Uh, this is uh, this is uh, this is amazing. So you would say uh, first build. Uh, we get a, we got a nice comment uh, uh, from Guido. Uh, build a human to human connection before you start juggling with value. Yes. Uh, uh, so it's empathy, basically, that uh, uh, that we're emphasizing and or relationship building. And this is uh, this is exactly this is exactly uh, uh, you know, Andreas, that we run uh, negotiation competitions for um, students and professionals. And this is exactly what we emphasize in our in our assessment method. Yes, we say yes, substance is important. Value creation and claiming is important, but it's only possible or it's only sustainable if there is a uh, a strong relationship uh, <clears throat> built between negotiators while doing so. Yes, uh, and uh, empathy is uh, is the key. Empathy is the key. Is the willingness to uh, and the willingness to understand and show that we genuinely attempt to uh, uh, to reflect the interests of the other party in our analysis of the situation. But empathy is not everything, uh, and let's uh, let's tackle the other part of the coin now, yeah. because we know that uh, those who are uh, those of us who are empathetic, they can uh, they can really well uh, create value. They can um, understand interest, create value, but they are on the weaker side when it comes to getting the larger piece of that value. So, Andreas, uh, what would an FBI negotiator say when it comes to value claiming and assertiveness? What do you think? Well, um, first of all, I'm not an FBI negotiator, um, but I've heard uh, I've heard uh, Gary uh, answering questions like that, um, and we had some discussions uh, about that because they are not that huge value claimer. That's not their world, um, and they don't have so much tactics on how to do that. That's a difference. Um, on empathy, on empathy uh, I think it is very important uh, to be quite clear uh, what definition of empathy we're using because there are a lot of them. Um, what I think what is really helpful is to make the distinction between empathy uh, as a unconscious uh, ability to feeling connecting to the other person and perspective taking ability. The perspective taking ability is mostly coming from the outer part of the brain, uh, from the uh, from the conscious part of the brain, and it's an ability to strategically think. Uh, through the perspective of the other person. So understanding the other person. Um, this PDA is always uh, a very huge asset and helps you to improve your business, uh, your uh, um, um, negotiation performance in business negotiations. Empathy is a tricky thing, as you said. When I was in, in Harvard 2001, my mentor, my course leader was uh, Bob Nukin. Uh, Bob Nukin, the, the, he was then the director of the program on negotiation, and he had, and, and he wrote that uh, that wonderful book uh, Beyond Winning. Um, and he has a, his model with the three tensions, and he's describing there that that there is this tension between empathy and assertiveness, and we have to manage that. And managing means, first of all 
that you are self-conscious and self-controlled during the negotiation process. You're not only acting intuitively and you um, and you um, you be more assertive or more empathetic in relation to the situation. If you have a negotiation situation where just the deal is your, is the goal, you have a huge bitter conflict to find a solution for all parties that is agreeable is a win, is a great thing. Then you, you switch and be 90% empathetic. But you should not do that in a normal business negotiation. In a normal business, business negotiation, you start being a little bit more empathetic but being always aware on what you're saying because of the information dilemma. Um, because, of that, because of every sentence that you said, even in the beginning of the negotiation, has his effects on value claiming at the end. But you start being a little bit more empathetic and then you shift it when bonding rises you shifted a little bit more on being assertive um, but you be assertive in a likable way and this is a, this is a competency that very uh, very much but that many many business negotiators don't have but should develop i call that in and i don't have an english term for that in german i call that professionelle hartnäckigkeit so it means so it means you're stubborn, you're really stubborn, you're really rigid in fulfilling your, your goals, but you're totally flexible in where the money is coming from. And you try to be the most respectful, most likable person on, on, on earth in dealing with, uh, with the other person or with the other human. Um, I think this is the most important thing that that, uh, that you don't switch um, to the assertive mode after. So, so you start with building bonding, then you switch to assertive mode and being rude then. You know, uh, that's not a good idea because then the other person doesn't trust you anymore. I think you think that that was a trick, some sort of, you know, some uh, you, you try to... Uh, simply to, to overcome him. So you have to try that bonding, um, but with PTA, um, you just um, try to make offers that is that, that are, are uh, persuasive for the, for the other person. That sounds good. And you use professional framing strategies to let your substance sounds really good and maybe more than it really is maybe more than it really is yes um so <clears throat> i call it the panda um uh the becoming or negotiating like a panda but we're um uh, we're gonna talk uh, talk about it probably uh later on um frank frank um who is who is based in the netherlands where our negotiation competition is taking place uh this year or the finals of our negotiation competition is taking place uh this year so and um, uh, Frank uh, Frank is asking <clears throat> about relationship building. 
Would you argue that the behavioral change stairway model that we discussed with Gary in our last episode, um, developed by him uh, for his crisis uh, crisis unit uh, um, for his crisis unit at, at the FBI, is the way to go, or do you believe that there are other frameworks or perspectives uh, that um, are stronger, let's say, more effective when it comes to relationship building? What do you think, Andreas? I think the behavioral change stairway model is a wonderful model because it is helpful on uh, um, focusing the uh, our attention on doing the first things first. So don't come up with some sort of influencing strategies without having having built a, a workable relationship. So um, and this is. What, what this model is saying. Uh, start with uh, with empathy, start with, uh, with focusing on the other person, use these active listening skills, try to raise and raise and raise rapport, and then you can bring the other, the other person to, uh, to cooperate. Um, and it, I think it's, it's, it's a wonderful model, really helpful to understand that. But it is a model that describes how initial, so, in a moment between human, a human a human's um, rapport and bonding is developed. In a business world, we also have other effects on relationship, for example, reputation. So you can use, for example, you, uh, you should work on, having a reputation in your industry that helps you when you start a negotiation with some someone new first thing but the, the, the second thing you can use third dimension strategies using public relation using social media to prepare before the negotiation and away from the table, a sense of reputation with your uh, with your uh, negotiation partner, and you can start, let's say, on plus ten, and not on zero when the negotiation at the table starts. Um, so I would add strategies like that in a business world, especially in industries uh, where we have just some huge players. I think there are uh, these, these strategic, I, I, call it, I call this strategic relationship management. Um, and these, these strategies are, I think, uh, at least that important as the initial uh, bonding building tactics at the table. Mm -hmm. Thank you for enriching our perspective on relationship building, uh, Andreas, with strategic relationship building, which is, I consider, also uh, extremely important. Uh, um, let me throw in my question, um, see, because um, we know that uh, all of us have certain triggers which raise, uh, raise our 
um, emotional response uh, responsiveness yes uh, and one of uh, and we tend to uh, and we tend to classify some of our partners as difficult uh, when they manage to, uh, to 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 touch those uh, those levers touch those triggers or to activate those triggers yes uh, um, how what would be our recommendation Andreas when it comes to dealing with difficult negotiation partners yes regardless of where the difficulty comes from yes when we I think we all know that or we have all been in a similar situations uh, where we simply felt uncomfortable yes, uh, while negotiating either, either for ourselves or our constitu constituencies uh, in more business-like context. Uh, what do we do? What can we learn from, uh, from the FBI who deal typically on an everyday basis uh, with difficult negotiation partners? Uh, uh, is there anything that we can, uh, that we can borrow from them? Well, from my perspective, it is the importance of self-control. Um, and um, by far the best book on that topic. Um, let me show it uh, for uh, everyone who is here, is Hostage at the Table from George Coriza. Um, he's writing a book on business negotiations from his crisis negotiation background. But there are chapters on early childhood uh, experiences and how they affect on our actual negotiation behavior. And, and his story is that a professional negotiator be aware of being taken as a hostage by a negotiation partner. Be taken as a hostage means that you come out of your driver's seat, you lose your ability of strategically acting and you come just in an emotional reacting mode. Um, so self-control is key. Um, there is no, nobody can make you upset. It is simply not possible for me to make you upset because if you get upset, that's an autonomous reaction or an autonomous decision within the unconscious part of your brain. It is your decision. It's a part of you, Remy, that makes that decision to get in anger as a response on high stress and stuff like that it's not me i'm not able to do that unless you let me do that so the most important thing is that you work on yourself or we all of us understanding our triggers and simply try to protect them that we learn where they are they are some like buttons. I always say, you know, every one of us has, has these hot buttons, hot buttons here. And if someone comes and makes push, we explode. So if we know our hot buttons because we have analyzed that, we can protect them. And if someone comes and make that, we can step back and go, go to the balcony, as William Uri is saying, go to the balcony, uh, and um, stop that reaction because it is overwhelming us. 
But to be able to do that, we have to be aware of our shadows or of our demons. Because every one of us has these triggers. And these triggers are very valuable thing because these triggers helped us to survive our early childhood. So, I know my trigger, Andreas, I know my trigger is unfairness. Yes. Uh, when I have a perspective at a negotiating table that's, uh, that someone is uh, trying to uh, take uh, an unfair advantage in my perspective, perspective yeah. of course, and uh, let's uh, let's put aside the definition of fairness or unfairness uh, because that would fill a complete episode uh, right but uh, uh, when i feel that uh, someone is um, is uh, intending or intends to take advantage of me in the negotiation that uh, uh, that triggers me that triggers me uh, very quickly and uh, what can i do uh, you know i know that i have this trigger yes uh, and i know that uh, that uh, switches off, switches me off from uh, rationality to emotionality. Yes? Uh, and that's where, you know, the more emotional we are, the less rational our responses become. Yes. Uh, what can I do to keep my cool? Yeah. Well, in the workshop that we did with, with Gary, we started to try to reflect on our triggers, to be aware of them. The next step that we did in these, in these workshops were... Um, to reflect on where they're coming from. Um, what situations in your life uh, are rude of this situation? Um, what people where you feel loyalty to? Um, are focusing on these issues also? What are some deep needs within your and what is a part of your identity that is combined with this with these triggers? So this is the first step. Um, and then, yeah, we have to dive deeper. So what we get as a feedback from the Gary Nessner course from from our participants where that that it was really helpful but in the situations where you have your, your your really huge demons you know your most favorite demons it is not enough and that's why uh why we um why we have developed a special workshop that we do the first time right and now in in, in march with uh, two uh, psychological specialists uh which are special uh, uh, which are really uh, good in analyzing or helping people analyzing uh, their their past and, and their biography and helping people to um, to switch emotional modes to to learn to switch emotional modes they, uh, there's it, it, just small techniques but it's nothing that you can uh, simply um, describe in in two minutes and take away. That, would be, that that would not be a good thing but but we have a huge toolbox. Of, of really of, of small techniques and and uh, the Lorenz Wahanka uh, uh, who's uh, one of, of my experts um, that I'm cooperating with he's uh, one of the leading experts on on, on this topic uh, in, in Germany um, and um, yeah maybe uh, if you're interested in um, just ask Lorenz uh, I think he would be 
uh, really happy to to do a podcast episode uh, on self-control uh, with you. Um, Absolutely. Uh, it sounds like a great recommendation. Thank you, Andreas, for sharing this. I will reach out to Lawrence. Uh, um, you guys should also uh, proud to cast out uh, those demons. You should uh, have an exorcist uh, in your in your <laughs> in your workshop. But uh, tell us, Andreas, when does the workshop? Uh, when just, does just just one sentence, please. But the the thing is, that's that's. This is feeding the demons. If you see them as demons and as bad, and if you try to separate from them, you're feeding them and you make them stronger. You have to integrate them. You have to respect them. You have to appreciate them for what they did in the past. And just if you, when you integrate them and no longer try to, to hide them for the world, uh, uh, from the world, right? To integrate them in your basic contrast, uh, in, in your basic uh, personal concept, then you can you can start to be able to control them. I uh, definitely need to speak with Lawrence about it. Yes, he is a psychologist and uh, exorcist, right? Uh, um, and in some in some religious, in, indeed, in some religious systems, um, uh, demons are a part or are considered a part of um, of our human nature. Yes, and indeed, embracing them, uh, embracing them is uh, let's say it's something that we need to uh, uh, we need to learn. So uh, we're slowly coming to an end. We still have a couple of questions in the chat, but let me maybe ask. Uh, ask one more uh, before i uh, before i before i um, display um, the latest question um success stories andreas um so does applying fbi tactics in business work and if yes do you have a, do you have a, a, a success story uh, from you from your um, uh, from your mentees uh, um, where they proudly reported hey i applied it and it really worked well, the most, for me, the most touching story that, that I've had, and I can share it with the world because he, he was publishing it on, on LinkedIn, uh, was a friend of mine, Stefan Park from, from Vienna. Um, he, he was uh, the quota Chinese, uh, as we uh, knew him in, uh, in the LinkedIn, uh, in the German LinkedIn world. Um, and Stefan Park, he was a participant in, in, in the first workshop that we had with Gary. Uh, and he was a premium participant, so he had a he had one-on-one -on -one coaching with us the day after that. And he came with a situation um, that that he was separated from his son, I think three since three or four years. Okay. Um, and he had tried everything with lawyers and courts and nearly every, everything. And then I, I, I just watched Gary coaching him uh, on how to communicate with the mother of his son and the family um, when he was flying to Taiwan. Um, and when he came back, Stefan Park uh, made a LinkedIn post that it was a totally different world, that he had um, contact to his son, was able to put him in his arms for the first time in three years, um, started to get a 
to get a relationship back and stuff like that. Um, and that shows that even in bitter disputes, and we also have bitter disputes in business negotiations sometimes, even then, if you step back and if you try to engage in strategic engagement, that means applying the active listening tactics uh, in the behavior change stairway model and working back on bonding, summarizing, 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 a little bit mirroring and labeling to put down the emotions. Um, you can you can create new ground, a new playing field where you can find new solutions that hadn't been there before. Wow, amazing! Yes, I'm glad that it uh, that uh, uh, that it's uh, that it has worked for Stefan. And I keep telling uh, keep telling my my students, hey, uh, never engaged with someone emotionally also uh, who's a bad negotiator because it's just asking for trouble. <laughs> so choose as a partner someone who is a who's a better negotiator than you are uh, so that when uh, conflicts come, yes, uh, so that you guys know what to do with them. Um, and uh, let us uh, I have two more questions and we're slowly approaching the end of our uh, the end of our episode. Uh, one comes uh, from the audience. Are any new studies either of uh, you uh, you have read recently related to negotiation that you would recommend and why? Okay. Um, well, this is a little bit, uh, that, that's a, a hard question uh, to prioritize. But, um, well, what I, uh, I, I was, um, uh, six weeks ago, I was in, in Harvard uh, for the, for the fourth, first days, uh, 40th birthday uh of the Harvard program on negotiation, and I was uh, I was attending um, a workshop uh, which was a really really um, mind blowing experience for me from from uh, Hannah Riley Bowles, Hannah Riley Bowles from Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, she's one of the leading experts on the world on uh, re doing research on uh, gender topics, on negotiation status topics on negotiation he was addressing uh the issues um are women negotiating different from men um and um uh and and he was uh, reporting a lot of uh new studies um and um yeah uh let me just read uh what she was giving as summarizing of her uh, of, of her lecture. The gender of a person is not a reliable predictor of negotiating behavior. Gender effects in negotiation are situational. So we have to look much more on context, much more especially on status context, than on, than on gender to explain, to, to find a real explanation on some effects that had been reported in earlier studies 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I think these field of, of gender, gender studies on negotiation, these field is emerging and switching in a way that could be really helpful to understand a lot of effects 
uh, on the power level and on the status level. Yes, I remember. I remember um, seeing Hannah in action um, <clears throat> also a couple of uh, couple of months ago. Um, maybe for those of uh, of us who um, uh, who are not aware of the of the larger context, for many years or decades, I think uh, decades, uh, uh, we focused in research on observations and very particular types of negotiations. So the gender studies were conducted in distributive, uh, uh, a strongly distributive context, like you know salary negotiation and stuff like that, or experiments which were one dimensional. And in those experiments, um, uh, women in general didn't do that as, as well as men did. Yeah, so for many decades, uh, we thought hmm, men negotiate better than women, but uh, it, it it turns to be, as Andreas uh, as Andreas uh, uh, nicely quoted, it tends to be highly situational. It depends on two dimensions, and that is uh, how stereotypical roles are perceived in a particular organization. So basically, if an organization believe that uh, believes um, <clears throat> that uh, women are worse negotiators, then then tend to perform worse. <laughs> and uh, and the other one I, I don't remember from the top of my head. So, but uh, the, the the bottom line is. Uh, um, uh, gender uh, gender is not a good predictor of performance of negotiation performance women negotiate just as well as men on average in general and and, and so on um my last question andreas and uh, and then uh, i'll uh, i'll let you and our listeners and viewers go um enjoy the enjoy the evening and rest of the day um great negotiators andreas who comes to your mind when you think about uh, greatness in negotiation well one person that's uh, really impressing me is Maurice Tayron. Maurice Tayron, he was uh, foreign minister first at the end of the French Revolution. Then he was the foreign minister uh, for Napoleon. And then he stays the foreign minister, uh, minister uh, for the reinstituted uh, new king of France, uh, negotiating uh, for France. Uh, at the Vienna Congress without losing any of the territories that France had held before they started the wars with Napoleon, even after the total defeat. That's not bad. But I have just one more who's much more impressive to me, and that's my older daughter. Uh, it's my older daughter, my oldest daughter, Leonie. Um, and uh, she's the, from tactical and and relationship management she's the best negotiator in the world and i've seen uh, i've i've seen gary doing things but i can i can tell you my my uh, my daughter uh, she's mentally handicapped she's um, she has down syndrome uh, she's mentally handicapped but she's implied to be the perfect way flexible and stubborn so she started on asking for can I watch television? Uh, we say no, she's not doing drama, but she says, okay, so maybe we can play something. No, at the moment, uh, just, okay. Um, can I have an ice, ice cream? No, ice cream, some chocolate. And she's doing that for, if necessary, five or six uh, minutes, but she's, she's doing that longer that any, any any opponent, even me or my wife, is able to, to stand because at the same time, she's doing it in such a likable way, building bonding and um, 
creating that idea of respect. So uh, I think a business negotiator that would apply, and I'm not able to apply it in that perfect way uh, myself. Uh, I have that role model. I'm not. I'm not able. But I think a, a business negotiator that comes close to that uh, idea of stay with your goal as long as it takes, being flexible as maximum in, in maximum and, and being respectful, building bonding. Um, he can he, he he can he can reach anything in that world. Thank you, Andreas, so much. Well said. Um, all the best to Leonie. Um, Andreas, thank you so much for sharing uh, sharing your experience, your knowledge uh, with our uh, viewers and listeners. Uh, um, <clears throat> um, it, we learned a lot. We know that FBI techniques um, are partially universal, especially when it comes to relationship building, but they become very powerful when we combine them with, uh, <clears throat> with value engineering um, techniques that we know from that we know from negotiation analysis, uh, non-crisis context. And once we are equipped with both, hey, we become the pandas. And what the pandas are, the panda bear tactics and strategies are, uh, we're going to talk in the next episode of the podcast on negotiation. Andreas, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Remy, for having me. And until next time on the podcast on negotiation, thank you, guys. All the best. Take care. Thank you.